to this point in the book of Colossians, Paul, who is the, the author of this, this letter uh, to this new church in uh, what is now modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, to this point, uh, Paul has been like pulling back an arrow like on a bow. And he's, he's getting ready, been getting ready to shoot this arrow. He's been building up the tension all the way to verses 6 and 7. So if you look at verses 6 and 7, you see the word therefore. And that's the first time this word occurs here in this letter. Because what Paul's been doing up to this point, he's been thanking God for the work that God has been doing in the lives of the Colossians. And he's been urging and, and through his prayer for the Colossians that they would, that they would continue to bear fruit. And then he's given them this, this full-length portrait of Jesus Christ in all his greatness. He's explained Jesus as the Lord of creation and the Lord of new creation. And he said that in Jesus are to be found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And now in light of all this tension that he's been building up, he has this pointed exhortation. He's saying this, okay, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, if this Christ, who is Lord and Savior, if he is your Lord, then you live your lives according to him. You walk in him. That's the central exhortation of this letter. That's what Paul is getting at. So, so verses 6 and 7 is like the arrow. And from verse 6 and 7, we see this arrow just sailing through the air. In other words, all that remains of the rest of the letter is what this looks like practically for people to be walking in Jesus Christ. Again, to remind you, what is a walk? What's this metaphor of walk? It means taking one decision after the other in life and doing it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Okay, if Jesus is Lord, then how should I spend my money? If Jesus is Lord, how should I navigate my relationships? If Jesus is Lord, how should I speak to other people? You're walking, you're making one decision after another with Jesus Christ as Lord. So what Paul is saying is, as you have received Jesus as Lord, that's how you should continue to walk in him. And that's a central exhortation. But what comes next then is, okay, what does that mean for us? Now, if you're ever explaining to someone how to get to your house... You say you're going to have visitors and you're talking on the phone and you're, you're giving them directions. You tell them not only how to get there, but if the way is confusing or if maybe the person tends to be easily confused, you might tell them not only the right way to take, but you'll also point out ways they shouldn't take. Right? You're going to see a fork in the road. Take the right path, not the left. You're going to be confused by this particular intersection. Make sure you don't go to where the yellow sign is or whatever it might be. You want to tell people not just where to go but where not to go. That's exactly what's happening here after verse 7 of Colossians chapter 2. Paul is saying, okay, you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, but there are some things that you need to be warned about. That's why he says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Here's what Paul is saying. There are some things that you cannot accept. There are some paths that you cannot go down. If Christ is your treasure, as he has explained so deeply and richly in the previous verses, if Christ is your treasure, don't exchange him for trinkets. If Christ is really what you need, then don't give him up for things you don't need. Don't let anyone take you captive by a system of thinking, by a way of living, by a search for meaning that is completely devoid of Jesus Christ. 
And so what Paul is saying in this passage, which is admittedly the, the, a lengthy passage that we're going to be preaching on, the, the lengthiest one that we've ever chosen for a, a sermon text to this point. Paul's, what Paul is saying is here is this. Don't be fooled. Only Christ fulfills. Don't be fooled. Only Christ fulfills. In fact, we could say the passage here can be broken up into those two statements. Unevenly, I must admit, but this is how we'll divide our sermon. Don't be fooled, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So don't be fooled. And then, verse 9 to 15, he's saying only Christ fulfills. Alright, so that's how we're going to divide it uh, in, our, in the time that we have remaining. Don't be fooled. Only Christ fulfills. So first of all, Fulfills. First of all, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. So, Paul is warning them against what he says is philosophy and empty deceit. What is he warning them against exactly? Now, to be clear, Paul is not telling them all philosophy is bad. Philosophy as we understand it. Like, using the, the tools, the, the rigorous tools of logic, Paul obviously is not rejecting. We know that Paul was a highly educated man. In fact, as you read some of his letters, you'll see the immense learning that went into being able to compose the arguments that he did. Certainly, Paul drew upon philosophy to commend the gospel. We know that he did this in Acts chapter 17. He was very familiar with the philosophers of the time, but he actually used their philosophies to prepare the, their receptivity to the gospel. Right? So Paul is not saying all philosophy is bad. Here's what he is saying. He's saying, you've got to be warned against someone offering you a system of life, a way to find true meaning and satisfaction with Christ completely out of the picture. He describes this as empty deceit, as, as a way of life, a system, a philosophy that depends on mere human traditions. According to the, he, he puts it this way, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And not according to Christ. You see, in the, the thought world, in the culture of that day, the Colossians may have had this mixture of Orthodox Jewish ideas and some, uh, some pagan ideas about there being many gods. So they may have had this idea that there are all kinds of deities and, and they're interacting with each other and you have to have loyalties to different deities. And Paul is saying, have nothing to do with that. There is one Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. And you don't have to have loyalty to any other power structure other than him. So don't let anyone take you captive. Only Christ fulfills. Now, if you look at verse 17, I'm skipping beyond the, the unit of our, our sermon this morning. But Paul says that these things, he's, he's referring to a system of rigorous rules. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come. So it may be that there is some truth in these systems. It may be there's some truth in these philosophies. Paul's saying that they're not complete. He's not saying they're completely devoid of truth. He's just saying they're not the substance. They may provide a mere outline of the truth, but the substance belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, someone might say, this sounds extremely narrow-minded, extremely exclusive. Are you really saying, is Paul really saying that no other approach to life 
is truly satisfying that doesn't have Jesus Christ at the center. Surely there are many other people who have found satisfaction and fulfillment apart from Jesus Christ. But what we must understand is this. Since the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, Jesus, a man who never sinned, who was killed, crucified on a cross, and then who rose from the dead, Jesus changes everything. What it means to be rational must now be measured against this new piece of evidence. And that is that there is a resurrection from the dead. That is that death is not the end of the story for human beings. That's what Jesus came to prove. And so it is true that there can be no system, no system of thought, no theory of meaning that can thrive or has any merit apart from Jesus Christ. He is the he is the pivotal person in history. As someone has put it famously, when you consider about who, think about who Jesus is, you have to accept him as either a liar or a lunatic or as Lord. Either he was deceiving the people purposely, in which case he's not good, or he was himself deceived, in which case why would you follow him, or else he was telling the truth and he knew who he was and he is Lord of all. You don't have any other options. People like to embrace Jesus' theory of ethics and say he had such wonderful teaching about loving your neighbor. And yet they don't want to believe about Jesus, what he said about himself. And it's true that what Jesus said about himself was validated by this historical fact. He rose from the dead. Paul is saying, don't be fooled. Only Christ fulfills Embracing another philosophy of life, another approach to finding true meaning in life, is just like a facade. It may look good from the outside, but there is no substance to it. So don't be fooled. And the second part, which is the lengthier part of this passage, is this. Only Christ fulfills. Only Christ fulfills. And notice in the text here, Paul says, uses this word, for this is a word of reasoning or of logic. So he's just given this warning against being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And then he's giving the reason for this. And there are two parts to this reason. I want to point them out to you. The first part of the reason that we should not be detracted away from Christ or fooled by other things that don't, that don't embrace Christ. First of all, it has something to do with Jesus, who he is. And then it has something to do with who we are in Christ. Right? So he says in verse 8, for in him the whole fullness of, the, of deity dwells bodily. And in verse 10, and you have been filled in him. So only Christ fulfills because first of all, who he is. And second, because of who we are in him. Only Christ fulfills because of who he is. So first of all, because of who Christ is. What is it saying about Christ and why only he fulfills? Why we should not be uh, detracted or duped or deceived by other things. It is because in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul is saying this. You, need, you want to know who God is? You want to know what really God is like? Look no further than Christ. 
Because Christ is the one who reveals God as he really is. This is what the Apostle John was saying in the opening words of his gospel. He says, nobody has seen God at any time. But the only begotten God who is at the side of the Father, he has revealed him. Right? The law came through Moses. And yes, the law was a, re a revelation of, of God. And that is his strict standards, his high standards of perfection. But grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Not just grace, not just truth, but grace and truth together. You want to know what kind of God he, God is? He's a God that shows grace and yet a God who has incredibly high standards. Jesus is the one who brings together these contraries in our minds so we understand what God is like. When Jesus was discoursing with his disciples before he went out to the garden of Gethsemane to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies, one of his followers named Philip asked him, said, Jesus, just show us the Father and that would be good enough for us. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been so long with you and you don't know me? Whoever has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. You want to know what, what God is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus shows us that God is completely holy. He cannot tolerate sin. And yet he's completely loving. He gave himself for us. That's what kind of God God is. And what Paul is saying here in Colossians is this. You don't need to look anywhere else for fulfillment because Jesus is the full revelation of who God is. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead, the fullness of deity bodily. Don't look anywhere else. Don't search in any other system. In Christ you have it. In Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Don't be fooled because of who God is in himself. So often we can be tempted to look at other things even to ourselves for discovering what God is like. We can consult our guilty conscience and feel like God is a distant, stern judge. Or we can consult our sense of, of licentiousness. I want to do whatever I want and consider God to be a permissive, dismissive, grandfatherly kind of person. <laughs> we need to understand God's mercy and his love. God's truth and God's justice as displayed in Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled. Only Christ fulfills because in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And verse 10, don't be fooled because of who you are in him. You see in verse 10, and you have been filled in him. The one who is the fullness of the Godhead is also the one who fulfills you. Because what good would it do to know merely that Jesus is the full revelation of God if you don't have a relationship with him? What good would it do if there was a meal in front of you and you didn't eat it? What good would it do if there was a glass of water in front of you and you didn't drink it? What good does Jesus do for you if you don't believe in him? And Paul is writing to those who have believed in him to stress this fact. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, the one who is the fullness of deity, you're full. You've been complete. You have what you need. Every empty spot in you, every craving for meaning, every cry of dissatisfaction can be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you are complete and you have been filled in him. Now what follows this is an explanation of what it means to be filled in Christ 
who is the head of all rule and authority. You see what Paul is referring back to when he says rule and authority. He's reminding us of what we looked at in the end of chapter 1. When he said that Jesus is Lord of creation and Lord of new creation. There are all kinds of power structures in this world. There are all kinds of things that people want to give their allegiance to. And, and Paul is saying this. There is one Lord. And it is Jesus Christ. And your loyalty must be to him. Because he alone can fulfill you. Well, what does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be filled in him? Well, beginning in verse 11, this is what Paul is explaining. And what's going on here in the rest of this passage is Paul is giving different metaphors or pictures of what it means for us to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. What happened to us when we believed in Jesus Christ from God's perspective? What is true about us, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ? Notice how many times this phrase, in him or with him or in Christ or with Christ, notice how many times that occurs. You see it in verse 10, you've been filled in him. You see it in verse 11, in him you are circumcised. You see it in verse 12, having been buried with him. You see it in verse 13, and God made you alive together with him. Here's what's going on. Is that when God, when someone believes in Jesus Christ... God looks at that person as if what happened to Jesus happened to them. From God's divine perspective, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been, you have died and been made alive together with Christ. That's what Paul's explaining, using different metaphors to illuminate this for us. Here's what's happened to us in Jesus Christ, Paul is saying. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, God looks in a completely different day, way. God considers what happened to Christ to have happened to them so that one day what happened to Christ will happen to them. Now, when Paul says, in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, we must understand something about the culture of that day, particularly Jewish culture. Circumcision was a mark that distinguished Jews from non-Jews. It was a sign of whether you're in or outside the covenant of God. To, to understand what an important thing this was for the Jewish people at that time, we need to look, look no further than the book of Acts. When some Jews thought that the Apostle Paul brought some uncircumcised men into the temple, precincts, with him, and that was such a, a no-no, such a taboo, such a thing that he, they, they, that he should not have done. They were wrong. He hadn't, he hadn't actually done it. They had just been with him somewhere else in the city. And they assumed that he had brought them into the, the temple precincts. And they were so upset about it that, that, a, that a riot broke out just because these men were not circumcised. I mean, that's how, that's how important of a thing it was for them to say, no, it's, it's you guys and it's us, and there's this boundary, and the boundary, the external mark of that boundary was this, this rite of passage that the Jewish baby boys would go through. That is circumcision. Now, what Paul is saying is this. This boundary is no more. To be accepted into the people of God is going to take more than an external mark. It's going to take nothing less than the death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus Christ. That's why he's saying, okay, in Jesus Christ, you're completely accepted. The old solidarities, the old boundaries, the old us versus them is erased for those who have been 
invited into the family of Jesus Christ. You see this later on in chapter 3 and verse 11. Paul is saying, here there is not Greek and Jew. That distinction has been erased. Circumcised and uncircumcised. That distinction has been erased. Barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. But Christ is all and in all. Paul is saying this, because of what Jesus has done for you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're in. No matter what culture you're part of, no matter what the external ethnic, ethnic boundaries are, there is no boundary that is for those who have been in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, by the putting off of the body of the flesh, he is saying those old solidarities, those old loyalties have been dissolved and new loyalties have been formed around Jesus Christ. Now, Paul goes on to explain what else has happened to them in Christ. They have been buried with him in baptism. Now, baptism is a picture of an, inner spirit, of an inward spiritual reality. When someone is baptized, they go down into the water and back up again. And that is a symbol of death and burial and new life. When someone is baptized who has trusted in Jesus Christ, it's, it's a way of saying, what has happened to me on the inside in my relationship with Jesus, I want to demonstrate to you on the outside. And here's a picture of it, being baptized. Now Paul is saying this, when you trusted in Jesus Christ, God considers you to have died to your sin in Jesus Christ. None of us could pay for our sin on our own. Our sin, the weight of our sin is too heavy. The immensity of our sin is too great. The penalty of our sin is too intense. Only Jesus could pay that for us. But if I believe in Jesus Christ, then I can be considered to have died to my sin with Jesus. And that's why he says, you have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Okay, if it is true that through faith we can die with Christ, so that when God looks at us, he considers us our sins to have been paid for in Jesus Christ, it is also true that we can be raised in Christ. That is, we live a new life. Only Jesus can give us the new life that no amount of works could possibly accomplish. Raised with him. He goes on and expands on that in verse 13. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. This is the new life in Christ. This is why Paul can say, don't be fooled by anything else. What else could possibly forgive you of your sins? What else could possibly take care of your biggest problem? Only Jesus can. Only Jesus is capable of doing that. And only in Christ can you be fulfilled. And you, he says in verse 13, who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him. How? How does God make people who are spiritually dead alive? How does God bring people who have been buried under a mountain of sin who are so committed to a lifestyle of rebelling against God, how does God bring those people to life again? Here it is in verse 14, in verse, the end of verse 13, having forgiven our trespasses. 
You see, the way that God deals with our spiritual death is by forgiving us of our sin. Because our sin is our greatest problem. When Jesus Christ came to the world, into the world, as the savior of, of human beings, he came, first of all, to solve the problem of our sin. Why? Because the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. We needed the, the root of our problem to be solved. Like death is just the fruit of the root. Death is just the symptom of which sin is the cause. Jesus Christ came to deal with the very cause, with sin. And that's why forgiveness of sin is needed to bring about life. You see the connection there. Having forgiven, God made us alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here is what, what, earlier I said that Paul is giving a series of metaphors or pictures to illustrate what has happened for us in Jesus Christ. And here God, Paul gives this, this vivid metaphor. It's almost as if the law of God, all God's requirements, like picture them as a, as a big stack of papers. Writing down all the things God expects people to do. And at the head of that stack of papers is this fundamental requirement. Love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love other people as yourself. And you look down that list and you realize, I've broken that one, I've broken that one, I've broken that one, I've broken that one. This record of debt is stands against us. I take the list of God's laws, I look, at, I look at the Ten Commandments for myself, I look at God's expectations and I realize I've not kept those. I have not fulfilled those. That is a record that stands against me. But here's what God has done. God has taken my record of debt and he takes that stack of papers and he carries it to the cross of Christ and he nails it above the head of Christ as he dies on the cross and says, as if Jesus was guilty of those. But Jesus never did anything wrong. He stands in my place as the perfect, sinless Son of God, suffering for my sin. That's what Paul means when he says, what did it take to forgive people? It took to take the debt of our sin and apply it to Jesus Christ so that he could die in our place. He said, by canceling the record that's of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, how did he do it? He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. If you remember from the story of the crucifixion, when Christ hung on the cross, there was a superscription that was put above his head. Do you remember what that was? It was, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Why was that title above his head? Well, it was put there by Pilate. And he did it, in, he did it to mock the Jews. He said, okay, you want this man dead? Well, I'm going I'm to say this. I'm going to say, well, here's your king. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And you remember the religious leaders at that time, they said, don't say he's the king of the Jews. If you're going to write anything, write this. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate said, too late. What I've written, I've written. How little did either Pilate or the people at the time know how true that really was? That Jesus really was the king. And as the king... He was the representative of the people. 
standing in their place. And what Paul is saying here is that there's, this, there's another inscription above the head of Christ. And it's the sins of all the people who were responsible for his death. In fact, the sins of all the people in the world who believe in Jesus Christ. And there it is, nailed, against, nailed to the cross. And in the, the greatest act of irony ever, Paul says this in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What were they trying to do? What were the rulers and authorities trying to do when they nailed Jesus to the cross? You have the, the, the most brilliant human government at the time, the Roman government. You have the most profound human religion at the time, Judaism. And the highest religion and the most powerful government, that when they conspired to do everything they could to put Jesus to open shame, by dying for them, God was actually putting them to shame. Stripping them of their glory, revealing them for who they really were. And in that act of irony, exalting Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's what Jesus does for us. That's how God takes the record of debt that is against you and me. The whole list of things that we could not accomplish in ourselves. And he nails it to the cross. And Jesus dies on our behalf. And now Paul is saying, this is the central force of his argument. Why would you seek fulfillment in anything else? I mean, Jesus has satisfied your deepest need. He solved your greatest problem. He fulfills you. What else could you ask for? So right on the heels of Paul saying to the people... Walk in Christ. You've received him as Lord. Keep on walking him. And don't be fooled by anything that says they can satisfy you apart from Jesus Christ. Because nobody but Jesus can accomplish such a thing for you. No one but Jesus Christ can die for your sin. There is no system of government. There is no group of friends. There is no amount of wealth. There is no retirement program that can forgive you of your sins. Only Jesus can do that. And therefore, only Jesus can fulfill you. Only Jesus can satisfy you. Only Jesus can quench that thirst for meaning and life that you so often crave for. So don't be fooled. Only Christ fulfills. Only Christ can triumph over the rulers and authorities. Only Christ can save you from your sin. Now what makes this personally relevant is that this is true for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Why would you add anything to this? You see, the reason why this is so important is because this message runs contrary to the deepest impulse that we have and that is to have contributed to something of our salvation. We want to be able to say, at least I did something to earn this. And Paul's like, you can't do that. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ fulfills. We tend to think, if only I would achieve this, this level in my workplace, if only I'd be accepted by this group of friends, if only I could get my head wrapped around this idea. If only I were to achieve this level of behavior, then I'd be satisfied. Paul is saying, no, in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, those old boundaries of loyalties have been dissolved to form new ones around Christ. 
because only he can bring you into a right relationship with God. Don't walk up to an, a cardboard house. Don't drink anything that's not water. Don't be fooled. Only Christ fulfills 